Welcome to a very special edition of the Washington Hour Home Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Ebel, your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture. And the reason this episode is so special is that I'm proud to announce the publication of my new book, Exploring Maritime Washington, A History and Guide. Each of the places covered in its pages has a connection to Washington's maritime history. Whether it's a popular tourist destination or a hidden gem known only to longtime locals. Exploring Maritime Washington will provide visitors with fun and easy ways to enjoy each community while learning about Washington's nautical history by visiting and experiencing Washington's special maritime features like museums, ships, lighthouses, waterfronts, all of it. The Heritage Traveler can obtain an authentic understanding of Maritime Washington's diverse history and culture. It's been nearly two years in the making, but thanks to the efforts of my co-author, maritime historian and author Chuck Fowler, and all the good people at the History Press, the book is now available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the History Press's website, my website, and as many gift shops and bookstores as you can find along the Washington State coastline. In this episode, we'll explore how the book came to be, how to use it, what can be found within its pages, and why you should pick up a copy as soon as you can. Find out how you can walk in the footsteps of American heroes across the deck of a Vietnam-era Forrest Sherman-class destroyer. Learn about some of the strangest things pulled up from the murky depths of Puget Sound by one of three sternwheel snag boats in the last century. And discover how our state's indigenous population once thrived before being decimated by disease and conflict, only to rise again with the resurgence of canoe culture. This, my friends, is the Maritime Edition of Washington, Our Home. In 2019, Congress designated nearly 3,000 miles of Washington's immense coastline as a national heritage area, one of only 55 in the country, but the only one to focus exclusively on maritime history and heritage. Now, you may be asking yourself, I've heard of national parks, national wildlife refuges, national forests, and nationally historic places. But what's a national heritage area? National heritage areas are places where natural, cultural, and historic resources combine to form a cohesive, nationally important landscape. They're locally run and completely non-regulatory. NHAs can support historic preservation, economic development, natural resource conservation, recreation, heritage tourism, and educational projects. It officially launched in 2023, but the effort didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't just the bright idea of some senator or congressperson. It took a number of individuals, organizations, and agencies well over three decades before it finally became a reality. I'd like to acknowledge the hard work and effort of Chris Moore and Alex Gradwall at the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation, the entity charged with managing the new heritage area, along with members of the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area Steering Committee, the State Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation, everyone who contributed to the 2011 National Maritime Heritage Area Feasibility Study, and all who contributed to the Maritime Resource Survey for Washington's saltwater shores, and everyone in Washington who has worked tirelessly to make this a reality. And why shouldn't it be a special heritage area? 
Within Washington's protected waterways, you can find a treasure trove of seafaring stories, beginning with this area's original inhabitants, on through the period of European-American exploration, settlement, growth, and on up to today's high-tech working waterfronts. Exploring Maritime Washington is as much a fascinating historical book as it is an indispensable heritage travel guide. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about its origins. But first, the origins of Washington's maritime history. The creation of this crisp saltwater paradise started roughly 100 million years ago during the late Mesozoic era when a large landmass known as the Okanagan Terrain rammed into North America. Okay, remember we learned in the Earthquakes episode of the Washington Our Home podcast that these geologic events really took place over tens of thousands of years and could not possibly be seen by the naked eye. But if you could time-lapse these events, what you'd see is a massive microcontinent known as a terrain pronounced like terrain, but it's spelled T-E-R-R-A-N-E, that would appear to float across the vast ocean and eventually smash into another, larger landmass that would become North America. Think of like when you pour your coffee and the bubbles tend to start grouping together as they float around the surface. Scientists call these land collisions docking, and there were several such events over the past hundred million years, give or take a millennium or two. According to a HistoryLink article, there have been some 50 terrain dockings that have contributed to the Puget Sound landscape we know and love today. The next major terrain docking happened 50 million years ago when the North Cascades terrain joined up with North America. The last terrain arrivals occurred beginning 15 million years ago. This succession of terrain dockings, one following another, formed Canada's Vancouver Island, a group of terrains known as Rangelia terrains, the San Juan Islands, which came from the San Juan terrains, and finally the Olympic terrain that ran into the other two and pushed up the Olympic mountains. Really, if you want to become an expert in these things, just go watch Nick Zentner's video on YouTube to learn all about it. He's a fascinating geologist right here in Washington State. Nick Zentner on YouTube. All this land smashing successfully extended the Pacific Northwest coastline by about 50 miles, leaving room for a future inlet, the Puget Sound. Now, during these millions of years, scientists don't believe there was an abundance of life in our area. However, at the end of the last ice age, it presented an opportunity for humans, animals, and plant life to develop. The Cordilleran Ice Sheet was a massive blanket that periodically covered large parts of North America during glacial periods over the last, oh, 2.6 million years or so. Then, about 16,900 years ago, an arm of the ice sheet known as the Vashon Glacier began melting and receding from areas that came to be known as the Puget Sound region and the Columbia Basin. By 15,000 years ago, the glacier retreated to the border of present-day Canada, leaving only small bits still reaching to the south. Well, small by geologic standards. One of these bits was known as the Puget Lobe, the last bit of ice that became Puget Sound as it melted. Now, it's unclear exactly when the first humans made it to the Puget Sound area, but most scientists agree that it was roughly around 12,000 years ago. The evidence gathered on HistoryLink.org suggests that the beginnings of the first Native American tribes descended from Siberia, entering the region as the glaciers melted. 
That led directly to the first maritime activity in our area, which we will cover in just a minute. Before we take a look at canoe culture and the first explorers in the Puget Sound area, I'd like to ask for your support on the Washington Our Home Patreon account. If you like these podcasts and videos and you want to hear more, it's simply a way to help keep this thing going. A few people asked me last month what I do with the donations, and the answer is a lot of things. I've had to purchase better microphones, get a new audio editing program, fill the gas tank dozens of times so I can travel across the state discovering these fascinating tales to share with you. If you're a dedicated listener and you want to help out, please take a moment to visit patreon.com slash Washington Our Home. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Washington Our Home. There's six membership tiers to hopefully fit your donating ability and some pretty cool swag available at each level. For just a buck, you can join the tourist tier. I'll give you a personal shout out on the show and on the Washington Our Home social media accounts. For $5, you can join the Traveler tier and get the shout-out, plus a one-of-a-kind Washington Hour home sticker. Join the Explorer tier for $10 and get a Life is Better in Washington mini-print. The Adventurer level is $15. You'll get a unique Washington State flag mug. At the Trailblazer tier, a $25 monthly donation, you'll get a limited-edition Washington State t-shirt. And if you enroll in the Mountaineer tier at $50, you'll be able to pick your own topic for a future Washington Hour Home podcast episode and participate in a live video Q&A session with me, your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture. Again, go to patreon.com slash Washington Hour Home to join now. And thank you for your consideration. The first peoples to inhabit the area today known as Washington State are part of one of the most uniquely fascinating aspects of Washington history. Today there are 29 federally recognized tribes with traditional lands inside Washington's borders, and a handful of non-federally recognized tribes still seeking acknowledgement by the U.S. government. It's a complex process resulting from centuries of delicately built relationships that were often sabotaged by broken promises, racist policies, and even acts of indescribable violence. But the tribes and nations in Washington today are strong and thriving. They've persevered through these challenges while retaining the beauty and culture of their heritage. These first residents of the Pacific Northwest grew over thousands of years by fishing for salmon, harvesting shellfish, gathering roots and berries, and hunting animals. Many tribes and bands would move from place to place as the seasons changed and resources shifted, which led to the development of a vast trading network between neighboring tribes. Though their access to the water was critical to their survival, it also included the ever-present danger of attack from outsiders. Whether traveling among villages, fishing, or engaging in conflict with other tribes, these indigenous peoples depended on canoes for their survival. They developed several types of canoes over the years, for varying purposes. Some styles proved more stable for river travel, while other styles required a sleeker design for hunting or for speed. Tribal members carved wider canoes to haul supplies, whereas canoes with high bows were better suited to cut through the tumultuous ocean waves. So embedded is the canoe in Straits Salish culture, as it's known, 
that a family's canoe was considered just as important as the family home. The book, Exploring Maritime Washington, introduces readers to 21 tribes, each with their own history, their own relationship with other tribes, and with non-Indigenous incursions into their traditional territories, and many of which maintain a heritage center or museum which can be visited on or off their reservation or traditional lands. By the late 15th and early 16th centuries, these tribes were largely thriving on the Pacific coast of North America. Around that time, British and Spanish seagoing explorers began probing the lands north of Mexico in California and farther up the continent. In the 1570s, English captain Sir Francis Drake sailed his ship Golden Hind to present-day Oregon, but did not lay national claim to the land. Two hundred years later, in the 1770s, Captain Juan Perez entered the territory and claimed what is now British Columbia for Spain. The Russians also made limited forays into what is now Alaska, but they did not venture further south. Now, during this two-century-long period, settlement and commercial expansion, mainly based on the fur trade, slowly developed on the Pacific coast. It wasn't until the late 18th century, in 1792, shortly after the American Revolution erupted on the Atlantic coast, that British and American maritime expansion took off in the Pacific Northwest. The British government sent Navy Captain George Vancouver to explore the shores of present-day Western Canada in search of a hoped-for Northwest Passage that would have linked the eastern and western sides of North America. From aboard two ships, Discovery and Chatham, and their longboats, Vancouver took extensive scientific sightings and soundings and named hundreds of geographical locations, including the extensive inland sea Puget Sound, which he named for his lieutenant, Peter Puget. At the same time, and in the same location, American Captain Robert Gray, aboard his ships, Columbia Redaviva and Lady Washington, had been dispatched by Boston merchants in search of sites to secure profitable otter furs as a commercial enterprise, rather than mapping and naming territory. When Vancouver first observed what would become Washington, he wrote in his expedition journal about his travels past a vast forest broken by pleasant meadows that reminded him of the English countryside. Vancouver and other crew members chronicled their interactions with the original residents of the region, the indigenous Coast Salish people, who had occupied and cared for the region's environment and resources since time immemorial. After settlement and population growth on the Atlantic seaboard began approaching what felt like critical mass in the late 1700s, President Thomas Jefferson kicked off the 19th century by dispatching Captain Meriwether Lewis and Lieutenant William Clark to lead the Corps of Discovery expedition in 1804. Their mission was simple, yet unimaginably difficult in execution. Explore the lands west of the Mississippi River that comprised the Louisiana Purchase. Along the way, they confronted challenges such as unforgiving terrain, harsh weather, treacherous waters, starvation, injuries, disease, and both friendly and hostile Native Americans. Nevertheless, the journey was a success in that they had reached the Pacific Ocean in what is now Washington and provided America with new geographic, ecological, and cultural information about a previously uncharted area of the continent. 
Within decades, the British Hudson's Bay Company began sighting trading posts on the Pacific coast to take advantage of the rich supply of beaver, otter, and other furs that were lucrative in the early 1800s. This had an added benefit of establishing a British presence on these so-called unoccupied lands, thereby reinforcing territorial claims made for the crown. As the United States grew into a fledgling country, it too wanted to expand its realm and sent American Lieutenant Charles Wilkes and the U.S. Exploring Expedition on a mission to sail to the Pacific and explore its farthest reaches, including the Pacific Northwest, which he did from 1838 through 1842. Many of the places and geographical features in Washington today were either named by Vancouver or Gray or renamed by Wilkes. 70 years later. Shortly after Wilkes mapped the waterways of Puget Sound, the specter of manifest destiny overtook many Americans living in the East and the Midwest. By the late 1840s, thousands of emigrants were packing up their families and their possessions into wagons and heading across a mostly unknown and dangerous overland route that became known as the Oregon Trail, so named because the most popular destination was the Willamette Valley in Oregon Territory. It was shortly after this push to the West that Washington became a territory of its own and needed a governor to help forge its destiny. After a series of hasty and misunderstood treaties that led to war with the Native American tribes, itself such a weighty topic that it will for sure be covered in a future podcast episode, the stage was set for Washington to develop and yes, exploit its plentiful maritime resources, leading to its expansion and growth into today's innovative, high-tech, culturally diverse international maritime economy. The book, Exploring Maritime Washington, is as much authoritative historical narrative as it is indispensable travel guide. I've divided it into five sections, Central Puget Sound, North Puget Sound, South Puget Sound, the Olympic Peninsula, and the Columbia River. While the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area covers nearly 3,000 miles of Washington's coastline from the Canadian border all the way down to Grays Harbor County, it does not fully extend into the Columbia River. And there's a good reason for that. While stakeholders were planning the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area, Columbia River counties in both Washington and Oregon were strategizing on their own to create a heritage area, the Columbia Pacific National Heritage Area. Now, these efforts unfolded simultaneously until plans for the Columbia Pacific area met resistance and were unable to move forward, ultimately leaving out Washington's Pacific County from the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area. However, my book does include Pacific County, along with Wakayakum, Cowlitz, and Clark counties, basically as far upriver as tidal activity is still measurable. The five sections in the book each contain hub cities from which maritime explorers may choose to venture out to other destinations, like spokes extending from the hub of a wheel. The central Puget Sound region covers attractions in King, Snohomish, and Kitsap counties, including the hub cities of Seattle, Everett, and Bremerton. The North Puget Sound region covers locations in Whatcom, Skagit, Island, and San Juan counties, including the hub cities of Bellingham, Anacortes, Coopville, and Friday Harbor. The South Puget Sound region covers destinations in Pierce, Thurston, and Mason counties and includes the hub cities of Tacoma, Olympia, and Shelton. The Olympic Peninsula covers Jefferson, Clallam, and Grays Harbor counties and includes the hub cities of Port Townsend, 
Port Angeles, Nia Bay, and Aberdeen. Finally, the Columbia River region covers locations in Pacific, Wakayakum, Cowlitz, and Clark counties, and includes the hub cities of Raymond, Ilwaco, Longview, and Vancouver. Now, let's get ready to explore some of the Maritime Washington Heritage Area together as we visit some of my favorite destinations in the book and hear from author Chuck Fowler about his love of maritime history and how it led to this book's publication. How long have you been in the maritime field? I mean, you got out of the Air Force in the early 60s. Did you go immediately into maritime after that? No, I was in maritime when I was growing up at my Swedish immigrant grandfather's beach home, which he built on uh, Maury Island, just across from uh, Bashan. I was born and raised in, in Tacoma. So what I used to do is we would have FOSS tugs coming into Quartermaster Harbor from Tacoma, and they would go over to the log dump and store the logs there. And every time a new FOSS tug would come by, a green and white tug, I would look at the name and I would draw the tug, the outline of the tug. So I had a whole series of drawings and I had one for every one. Years later, I was on the board of the Washington State Historical Society. And um, we had the family, the Foss family, come and tour the new museum as it was being constructed. The State History Museum. The, state, the new State History Museum. Which opened, Museum. I think, in 96. Yeah, that's right. And so I was on the board, and so I knew that Drew and Henrietta and their families were coming. So I was helping conduct the tour, and I said, uh, Drew, Henrietta, I, I have something I want you to see. Would you come into the boardroom? I said, I want to show you some drawings. And I pulled out my drawings that I made when I was seven years old of all the Foss tugs that I saw go in front of me and, and of which I did drawings. Wow. So <laughs> I had them all, and uh, they were quite amazed. And But that was just part of my growing up experience, and that just kind of morphed into doing the tugboats on Puget Sound book, the tall ships on Puget Sound book. I had a good friend who did a book, and it was on the Foss Maritime Company. His dad had been a captain for Foss. He was a school teacher, but he was a great photographer, and he just photo-documented everything. He'd go out with his dad on the Foss tugs and all that. So he, he completely documented the company. He knew uh, Drew Foss. He knew Henry Foss. He knew Henrietta. He knew the family members. Both of us were just kind of immersed in that whole Foss history. Your love of maritime activity goes back to your childhood. Yep. At some point in your life, you decided you wanted to put your communications skills to work, right. but you wanted it to focus on nautical and, and maritime and, and heritage in that area, right? Yes. And the way that happened was that we, Carla and I, got involved in Olympia Harbor Days, which is a tugboat-focused uh, maritime activity. And we came to Olympia in 1975, and that was right at the beginning of the time when Olympia Harbor Days, the tugboat festival and the gathering of tugboats and the restoration of them and tugboat races, uh, that's when that all started. And so we were starting our 
marketing and communications firm at that time. And one of the activities that we used to become known and to develop our business was we took on Olympia Harbor Days as a pro bono, as a volunteer activity, and did all the marketing and the posters and the clothing and uh, all of that. So we kind of used that to help develop our, our business. But we also got to know all of the tugboaters. And at that time, there were probably 25, 35 members of what was called the Retired Tugboat Association. And these were just people who owned former tugboats that they had converted into cruising tugs for their families. And they had a group that would go to various ports in British Columbia and Washington and have family gatherings. They'd have potlucks and, you know, just gather and talk tugs. And it just became part of the history. And so these people led us into their tugboat world. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a tugboat captain, but uh, the these owners became just really uh, good friends. And so we helped them market their event and bring attention to what they were doing. The people really appreciated them putting all the time and effort and money into the restoration of their historic workboats. All right, we'll get back to Chuck in just a moment. First, I want to take you through the five sections in the book. Some of the destinations within the Central Puget Sound section include the Museum of History and Industry, the Duwamish Longhouse and Cultural Center, Mukilteo Lighthouse Park, Puget Sound Naval Shipyard, the Polsbow Maritime Museum, and many more. I'm going to tell you some of my favorite stories from the area, starting with Historic Ships Wharf at the south end of Lake Union, just outside the Museum of History and Industry. It is perhaps the best place in the state to see a collection of iconic maritime vessels of significance to Washington's past. Visitors can stroll along the wharf, reading about the histories of these ships, taking photographs, even touring them. In the first slip is one of the last remaining Mosquito Fleet ships, the steamer Virginia 5, a National Historic Landmark. The only other surviving Mosquito Fleet vessel is the Carlisle II, which still plies the waters around Bremerton. Virginia 5 is spelled with the Roman numeral V in place of the number 5, which is why it's sometimes known as Virginia V, or simply V, to the remaining few who experienced the ship in its heyday. It's a century-old ship that began servicing the Seattle-Tacoma route in 1922, ferrying thousands of passengers across Puget Sound until 1942. You can learn all about it in my Mosquito Fleet podcast episode from last season. Floating right beside Virginia 5 is the tugboat Arthur Foss, more than 30 years older than its Mosquito Fleet neighbor. In fact, it's the oldest vessel still afloat in the entire Pacific Northwest. Built in 1889, the same year Washington received statehood, Arthur Foss is one of the founding members of a vast fleet of tugs built by the Foss Launch and Tug Company, known today as Foss Maritime. At one time, its job was to shepherd sailing vessels across the treacherous Columbia River bar into Astoria. During the Klondike Gold Rush, Arthur Foss towed barges to and from the gold fields in Alaska, and in 1933 it was featured in the film Tugboat Annie, based loosely on the life of Tacoma businesswoman Thea Foss, the company's founder and namesake. It also has the dubious distinction of being the last ship to leave Wake Island before the Japanese invaded in 1941. 
Next in the lineup are two unique service vessels that each played a part in the history of western Washington, the Fireboat Duwamish, which protected Seattle's wooden waterfront from 1909 until 1985, and Lightship Number 83, the Swiftsure, a floating beacon to help guide maritime vessels where no lighthouses could be built. For 94 years, Duwamish was the world's most powerful fireboat, able to pump 22,800 gallons of water per minute through its nozzles. Just four years after it launched, Duwamish was integral in fighting the Grand Trunk Pacific dock fire on the Seattle waterfront, which leveled the structure in just two hours. Because... Giant wooden structures coated in highly flammable creosote tend to burn hot and fast, leaving next to nothing behind. Swiftsure, one of the more unique ships to behold, is the oldest of its kind in the United States. Launched in 1904, Lightship No. 83, as it's officially known, protected sailors up and down the Pacific coast until 1960, and still retains its original steam engine. Many people have asked me, What's a light ship? And the answer should be pretty obvious. It's a very big ship, adorned with a very bright light. See, to protect mariners from dangerous coastlines, we usually build a lighthouse. Unless the terrain is simply too unforgiving, in which case... Lightships. Lightships were traditionally named after the station to which they were assigned, but were given numerical identifiers in 1867 to make record-keeping easier. Swiftsure's last point of service was off the Swiftsure Bank in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, between Washington and Vancouver Island, Canada. During its period of service, Swiftsure helped rescue hundreds of people from dozens of stranded and sinking ships. Both Duwamish and Swiftsure are official Seattle landmarks as well as National Historic Landmarks. And rounding out this cast of historical characters, moored at Historic Ships Wharf, is the schooner Tordenskjold. Built in 1911 in Seattle's Ballard neighborhood, it spent over a century fishing the North Pacific for halibut, cod, tuna, crab, shrimp, and more. Tordenskjold retired from service in 2012 and was donated to Northwest Seaport five years later. Historic Ships Wharf is just a stone's throw from the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle and the Center for Wooden Boats at the south end of Lake Union. Now, let's hear some more from Chuck Fowler. At some point, your company was selected to help promote the state of Washington's centennial event. That's right. Tell us what that was like. That was a wonderful experience. And um, the two co-chairs of the Washington State Centennial were uh, First Lady Jean Gardner, Governor Booth Gardner's wife, and Secretary of State Ralph Monroe. And we got to know both of them very well. And Ralph became the focal point of doing all of the activities for the centennial. So we applied for the contract to do all of the marketing and public relations for the state centennial maritime activities. And it just fit perfectly into what we wanted to do and what we loved. So it was a, it was a wonderful experience. I'll bet. Uh, briefly, tell me about Ralph Monroe, who wrote the foreword to our book. Tell me a bit about what he was like during that time. 
Yeah, well, Ralph, his dad was a stone carver for the state capitol, and Ralph has his stone tools, and he displayed them in the Secretary of State's office. So he is deeply involved in that history. And then when we got involved and we put him in contact with people like uh, Ernestine Bennett, who owned the uh, 136-foot schooner Adventurous, and, and then they decided that the um, state would build a replica of the Lady Washington uh, square rigged tall ship for the centennial. Then that became a project of the, of the centennial. That was a wonderful experience that we had during those periods of commemoration and celebration. Can't ask for much more than that. <laughs> that was sort of the beginning of the idea of forming at some point a national heritage area that focused exclusively on Washington state's coastline and the the communities and the cultures and all of what makes Washington and its relationship with the ocean special. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that genesis <laughs> happened and the process it went through before it got 30 years later yep. approved by Congress. It basically started at the end of the centennial in 1989. There was the group of us that were maritime heritage people, and we had, again, as I said, historic ships. We had maritime uh, organizations. We had craftsmen who built and uh, restored vessels. And so we were all just this infinity group, and uh, we talked to each other. We told each other in terms of maritime museums and ships and all what works and what doesn't and how you fix things and how you develop uh, programs and uh, restore vessels and all that. So it was just a, a wonderful affinity group of people who helped each other uh, develop um, maritime history. And so when we found out at the end of this period, gee, there is this program under the National Park Service called the National Heritage Area. And there are, at that time, there were about 45 heritage areas in the United States, most of them on the East Coast, very few on, on the West Coast. And uh, so we kind of said to ourselves, we had the Heritage Area Coordinator come out from the National Park Service and have a meeting with us at the um, what used to be then the Naval Reserve Armory, now the Mohai Museum at right. the South End of Lake Union. And we said, well, what's this heritage area all about and how do we get one? And she said, well, you have to go through and you have to do a feasibility study and you have to outline what activities you have and what features you have and what uh, facilities and what ships. And uh, then you do the inventory and, uh, and then you submit that to the National Park Service and then to the Department of the Interior. And then if all that comes to pass, you go before Congress and you ask Congress, you want to do a national maritime heritage area? Oh, by the way, there isn't another national maritime heritage area in the United States. Right. That really was a realization for us. And you mean, whoa, New England doesn't have one and nobody has one back there and with all of their uh, maritime history. Sure. Nope. So let's go for it. And so we did and uh, got the money from the Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation and went through the process and then lobbied the legislature. And uh, actually, we didn't think it would ever happen. We thought, okay, the feasibility study was finished. 
And then we didn't hear about it for a long time. I don't, I don't think it was a couple, three years or more. All of a sudden, we hear that there is a public lands bill going through Congress, and it's all for, you know, establish new national monuments and new heritage areas and all of that. And it's our legislative delegation uh, attached our bill to this public lands bill. My God, it's moving. And um, what happened is that it came down to the wire and it had so much bipartisan support. We all of a sudden, we were one of two national heritage areas established in Washington state. The other one was the Mountains to Sound Greenway. More from Chuck in just a moment. First, let me take you to one of my favorite destinations in the North Puget Sound region. Remember, that includes Whatcom, Skagit Island, and San Juan counties, and includes the hub cities of Bellingham, Anacortes, Coopville, and Friday Harbor. At the Maritime Heritage Center in Anacortes, visitors can experience the town's rich waterfront history through exhibits and artifacts related to indigenous life in the area, early exploration, the fishing and canning industries, shipbuilding, ferries, and the port of Anacortes' history including lumber mill operations and recreational boating in the 20th century. Vintage movies and mural-sized photographs from along the waterfront supplement the displays, along with the six-foot wooden wheel and telegraph from the historic ferry Vashon. The exhibits provide a complete overview of shoreline activities including boat building, mills and canneries, commercial and recreational boating, shipping, and transportation. That is the Maritime Heritage Center in Anacortes. However, dominating the entryway to the center is the enormous sternwheel steamer W.T. Preston, one-third of a trio of steamers that once kept the area's inland waterways navigable. Now a National Historic Landmark, the W.T. Preston's job from 1929 through 1981 was to remove navigational hazards from the bays and harbors of Puget Sound and the rivers that feed it. Fallen trees and other debris would create log jams, and shifting sandbars made river travel treacherous. The W.T. Preston, along with her predecessors, the Skagit, which was in service from 1885 to 1914, and the Swinomish from 1914 to 1929, worked from Blaine all the way down to Olympia, clearing countless snags, log jams, and other debris, including numerous sunken marine vessels and even a crashed airplane. It was named for a distinguished civilian engineer who worked for the Army Corps of Engineers. The W.T. Preston was also used as a pile driver, an icebreaker, and it dredged about 3,500 cubic yards of material in an average year. When the cost to maintain the W.T. Preston became prohibitive, the Army Corps of Engineers finally retired the storied steamer and sought for it a permanent home. The city of Anacortes was an excellent choice, given how much time the snagboat had spent in nearby waterways. In 1983, the W.T. Preston was hauled out of the water for the last time, which would have been mesmerizing to watch. It was moved to its current location, where it educates throngs of visitors annually about maritime history in Washington. Admission to the Maritime Heritage Center is free, and tours of the snagboat conducted by an extremely knowledgeable volunteer docent are only $5. Other notable destinations in the North Puget Sound region include Salmon Woman at Maritime Heritage Park, Ship Harbor Interpretive Preserve, the Langley Whale Center, Fort Casey, Roach Harbor, and more. 
Now let's hear some more from Chuck. Chuck Fowler, author of Tugboats on Puget Sound, Hull Ships on Puget Sound, Patrol Boats on Puget Sound, <laughs> uh, is now part of this national and statewide effort to get this National Heritage Area to become a reality. But you were the one who had an idea that somebody should write a book that gives people direction on how to interpret all of the myriad history and culture that exists over the 3,000 miles that is now the designated heritage area? Well, through the process of working with Arcadia Publishing Company, and Arcadia Publishing Company publishes uh, kind of uh, compendium pocket books, you know, quick overviews of various topics. And I found out, although they have an Images of America series, which publishes books about specific history topics, I found out they had another publishing imprint called the History Press, and they publish specifically travel guidebooks historical travel guidebooks. So I wrote to my, my editor and said, uh, gee, uh, have you ever done a um, heritage area book for the National Park Service? And she said, no. I said, would you like to do one? And she said, yeah, it sounds interesting. Why don't you submit a proposal? So I had written three books by that time, and they each take about a year and a half to do, to do all the research and to put all that together. And I'd been in magazine and book publishing in my earlier career, so I knew what it all was all about and how to, how to put them together. So I, you know, went ahead and decided to do that. Then as after I started the process, I found out that uh, I wasn't getting any younger and uh, maybe I needed a uh, colleague to help me finish that book. And so that's when I uh, heard about, I didn't know about um, you, Eric. Uh, so I uh, said, well, who is this person and what does he do? Well, maybe he would like to uh, publish a uh, a heritage guidebook, a National Heritage Area guidebook, and it would be good for me because I haven't got the energy and the time to do another book, and Eric needs uh, some more visibility in terms of developing his business. And so it just all worked uh, together, and uh, we cooperated to uh, publish it, and uh, lo and behold, after about a year and a half of work, last week on my doorstep and on your doorstep, there's the book. There's the book, which is now going to be available as of April 10th. I think it will be a bestseller. And uh, because I kind of focused on maritime history and uh, said to myself, I think tugboats will be of interest. I think tall ships will be of interest. And I uh, think that uh, patrol and rescue boats will be of interest. And lo and behold, uh, the three books have sold more than 10,000 copies now. And so that just shows that there's just a lot of interest in that subject. And so I think, therefore, there'll be a lot of interest in uh, the maritime heritage area. Well, and beyond that, this book includes lighthouses. This book includes military history, specifically the coastal defense system here in the Western United States. Mm -hmm. And it includes tribal history and, and, and tribal maritime stories. It includes working waterfronts and their histories, the history of ports that have been around since the very first pioneers set foot 
on the shores of Puget Sound. There is so much in this book, I think, that something in it is going to appeal to everyone. Right. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about maritime in Washington State in general. Uh, you've obviously been involved in that circle for a long time. Tell me some of your favorite stories. What are some of the, the most interesting things that you've learned? Well, I think that uh, one of the things is uh, it's the people. Uh, I've come to find out, yes, the stories are interesting and, uh, you know, sea captains and various kinds of ships and their history and all of that. But what makes it interesting and kind of personal is uh, knowing the people. One of the things I always like to do is I like to talk about and uh, chronicle living history. I like to take the people who've lived the history of, say, a historic vessel over a period of 50 or more years, and then see what they do, see how they use their hands and their heads to restore uh, vessels, and then learn from their hands-on history more about it. Because I'm not a ship captain myself. I've not gone through the whole process of getting my Coast Guard license and being a operator of a ship, although I've ridden on many of them and I appreciate people who let me ride on them. But I haven't uh, had that kind of experience. So in order to get as close to that as I can and to understand and know the history of uh, the vessels and hear the stories and all, I am able to draw upon my friendships to really make that a fulfilling experience. And so that's the real value. And I've been very fortunate to know some of these people and um, hear their stories and be the beneficiaries of, uh, of their knowledge. You know, speaking of the people, the National Heritage Area is being managed by the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. Mm -hmm. Uh, which primarily focuses on structures, buildings, but also includes uh, historic ships and, and things like that. So this effort to manage a national heritage area is a, a little bit new for uh, an organization like that. Tell me what your thoughts were as part of the steering committee watching them develop this process. Well, it was one where you would uh, you'd say to yourself, this whole process, this whole new idea, this whole new program is evolving and developing uh, as we speak. Some of the things which we'd always dreamed about happening, putting more attention on maritime history and, uh, and stories and uh, vessels and all that, is actually happening. We're no longer kind of in the shadows of history. Uh, we're, we're no longer focused on so much on structures, just houses and buildings, all of that. Now we get to work on the living maritime facilities and the vessels that make that history. And it includes also the Native American uh, history with the canoe culture, sure. the canoe designs, and the carving and all of that. The Native Salish people were here first before us. And so they need to be honored and their history needs to be told and retold. So that is another element of telling the story and that we've kind of started that process during the centennial and uh, later and that can continue and become uh, uh, bigger and better all the time. So the Washington Trust has, I think, successfully been able to capture both the advocacy of many of the tribes in Western Washington, along with the visitor and convention bureaus and the 
tourism boards and the working waterfronts and ports associations. And, and they've, I think, done a masterful job of bringing everybody to the table to all have input into this process. Mm-hmm. Chris Moore, who's the executive director, and Alex Gradwall, who is the project manager for the National Heritage Area, uh, I think have just been outstanding in their roles shepherding this through the process. I, I can't say enough good things about them. Uh, so, so my hats off to Chris and Alex and the good work that they do. Absolutely. I would also be remiss if I didn't say that operating within the, the heritage circles is what brought me in contact with you, sir. So when you approached me and asked me if I was interested in taking on this book project, it was so, I think, providential that I was in exactly the right place, being at a point where I had just published, self-published my first book, and I was looking for a new project. So to me, it felt like a match made in heaven, but I really wouldn't have been able to take that step had you not brought me that idea in the first place. And so I will forever be grateful to you for for doing that. Well, I think I'm thankful to you too for taking on that responsibility because I needed a colleague at that time to continue on with my work. I was kind of coming, I'd done uh, three books and I'd done lots of other projects. I'd been on the board of the State History uh, Historical Society. I'd been on the board of the State Capitol Museum and I'd been involved in maritime heritage, nonprofit organizations and all. And so it was time for me to kind of close some parts of my uh, my maritime and my heritage life. So that all came together. You came into the picture, and so it all uh, it all just happened. So I think it's been great for both of us, and uh, I really appreciate uh, your involvement and your cooperation. You know what that sound means. It's time for today's trivia questions here on the Washington Hour Home Podcast. I'll ask five multiple choice questions and you remember your answers until the end when all will be revealed. This, of course, is the Maritime Trivia Edition covering information we've learned so far in this episode. Question number one. In what year did the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area officially launch? Your answers are A, 2001, B, 2012, C, 2019, or D, 2023. Question number two. What do we call the massive microcontinents that float around the Earth's crust, smashing into each other to create larger land masses? Your choices are A, terraforms, B, territories, C, transformers, or D, terrains. Question three. According to HistoryLink, today's Native American tribes in Washington are thought to have traveled from which region after the receding of Ice Age glaciers? Your answers are A, China, B, Siberia, C, Canada, or D, Mongolia. Question four. Which of these four European explorers arrived in the vicinity of Washington's coast first? Was it A, Charles Wilkes? B. Juan Perez, C. Robert Gray, or D. George Vancouver. Finally, question five. The tugboat Arthur Foss was the last to leave which South Pacific island before it was invaded by the Japanese in 1941? Was it A. Guam, B. Guadalcanal, C. The Marshall Islands, or D. Wake Island? 
Keep listening to the end of the episode to get the answers to today's trivia questions. Right now, we're back to the book, Exploring Maritime Washington. Let's visit the South Sound region now, which is made up of Pierce, Thurston, and Mason counties and includes the hub cities of Tacoma, Olympia, and Shelton. Some of the destinations within the South Puget Sound section include Gig Harbor's historic net sheds, the Stillicum Tribal Museum, Olympia's historic waterfront, the Billy Frank Jr. Nisqually National Wildlife Refuge, the Squaxin Island Tribal Museum, and more. I want to draw your attention to a destination that is a bit of a hidden gem here. If you enjoy hiking, as well as maritime history, this is one that should not be missed. However, it must be undertaken at low tide, as it leads to a unique shipwreck just off DuPont's coast. Known locally as the Concrete Ship, or the Cement Ship, the hundred-foot hulk all but disappears when the tide is in, but lies split in two and half-buried in the tide flats when the water is at its lowest. Originally built as a water tender in 1919 by the Great Northern Shipbuilding Company out of Vancouver, Washington, Ship Number 223169 was what it was called until it was finally given the name Captain Barker. Along with its four sister ships, these five stone boats, as they were known, were to be towed to Fort Stevens, Oregon and San Francisco, California by the U.S. Army tug Slocum. Until Three of them broke loose and were lost en route during a nasty storm. Only the Captain Barker and the Captain Boots survived the journey. Both were later sold to the Foss Launch and Tug Company in the 1950s and renamed Foss 103 and Foss 102, respectively. Now, records don't reveal what happened to the Captain Boots, but the Captain Barker appears to have been lost sometime in the 1970s, sinking to the ocean floor in the very spot it remains today. Now, these types of ships, they're constructed with reinforced steel bars encased in concrete due to the lower cost of materials, at least at the time, compared to more traditional methods. Known as ferro-cement ships, they were used heavily between World War I and World War II and helped support both United States and British invasions in Europe and the Pacific. Maritime explorers can park at the DuPont Civic Center, 1700 Civic Drive, and hike the nearly two-mile Sequalichu Creek Trail to the beach. Turn left, hike along the waterfront for another 30 minutes or so, and that should bring the wreck into view. If you time it right... At a minus tide, the straight path from the beach to the boat is clearly visible, and the wreck is completely exposed, just waiting for exploration. Adventurers should be warned, however, not to spend too much time pondering the past, lest the tide come in and trap them aboard the derelict vessel for about another 12 hours. Tell me now, uh, we'll, we'll wind this interview down, but I want you to tell our listeners what the Parthia is and how they can help get that across the finish. Well, uh, during the years, Harbor Days is a annual maritime festival which celebrates the working waterfront, tugboats, tugboat racing, and that's part of, uh, of, of the working uh, waterfront uh, ethic. So we celebrate that each year in Olympia on Labor Day weekend. And that activity 
this year will be the 50th anniversary year of that, uh, of that event. Then as we came along, we got to know some of the uh, historic tugboats. One of them is the Sandman, and that is a 1910 uh, Olympia tugboat. It's a um, National Historic Landmark vessel, and it's on exhibit in downtown Olympia. Floating in the water right now. Yep. And so then uh, what happened was that in 2016, a 46-foot long 1908 wooden tugboat came to Olympia and uh, it had won its uh, tugboat race uh, six times. It had participated in the tugboat races themselves 26 times for 26 years. And uh, lo and behold, uh, it went back a new person bought it from california and it went back to pleasant harbor and hood canal and it sank in 25 feet oh. of water so uh we our little nonprofit maritime heritage association said uh, that tug towed in olympia for 40 years for foss and the delta smith tugboat company and we are not going to let that part of our history go so we started calling people and asked to have it salvaged and has to have it uh, repaired and and have it towed back it sunk in hood canal had to be towed back to olympia 100 miles and everybody who we asked to help us said yes and so that resulted in the tug coming back to olympia and then a restoration process started we've put in uh two hundred fifty thousand dollars of uh in kind and pro bono services those are donated services we've raised cash and we are still raising cash to complete the uh, project and our intention is to put it up on in a cradle and put it up near the port of olympia on display as a symbol of our working waterfront history so that's what we're all about and that's what we're doing and eventually the sandman and the parthia will bookend a historic tugboat heritage walk through olympia on the harbor it will start with the sandman people can work their way across Percival Landing, up past the still working waterfront of the Port of Olympia, mm -hmm. and then across through the farmer's market to find the Parthia on display. That's right. If they can get the final funding push they need to get it over the finish line. Yeah, we think we'll get it. Uh, and we're, very, uh, we're very optimistic about it. There's a lot of support uh, back uh, for the project through state government and in local government and uh, private donors and all that. So we're pretty confident that it's, that it's going to happen. So it'll be a new feature for Olympia and South Sound and also for a new feature for the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area. So it'll, uh, it'll just be a lasting legacy project. And if any of our listeners wanted to donate <coughs> to help get it across the finish line, where would they go to do that? They would go to the website for the uh, South Sound Maritime Heritage Association and the Parthia Tugboat Project. If you Google that, you will find the site and you can donate that way. Very good. Very good. Well, sir, it's been exciting and fascinating and educational collaborating with you on this project. Exploring Maritime Washington, a history and guide will now be out on bookshelves throughout Washington State. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your, your contributions and thank you for taking the time to help me promote it today. Thank you.
Over to the Olympic Peninsula now, which includes the counties of Jefferson, Clallam, and Grays Harbor, and the hub cities of Port Townsend, Port Angeles, Nia Bay, and Aberdeen. Some of the destinations in the Olympic Peninsula section include Forts Warden and Flagler, the Fierro Marine Life Center, the Macaw Cultural and Research Center Museum, and the recently remodeled Coastal Interpretive Center in Ocean Shores. One of my favorite stories from the Pacific Coast is of Martha White and the wreck of the British bark Ferndale in 1892. As many an unfortunate sailor has learned, the underwater topography off Washington's coast often combines with hazardous weather patterns to generate a swift surface current that drives ships northward. Should a ship awaiting a pilot to escort it safely suddenly be cut loose by severe winds, it very well could meet the same deadly fate as dozens of other ships over the years. There have been all manner of ships grounded along the North Beach and subsequently destroyed by the pounding of the relentless surf, but perhaps none as dramatically as the Ferndale. Just after the new year in 1892, a season notorious for bad maritime weather, the 240-foot sailing vessel was hauling a load of coal and coke from Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia to Portland, Oregon, when it got caught in a heavy current trying to enter the Columbia River. In a deep fog, despite having its anchors out, the gale-force winds blowing from the southwest drove the ship 60 miles to the north and ran it hard into the sands near Copalis, just after 3 a.m. As the ship listed severely to one side, the waves began smashing over the deck and washing away anything that wasn't tied down. Some crewmen grabbed life vests while others lashed themselves to the masts or to the rigging. An unfortunate few were simply washed overboard and vanished beneath the pounding surf. After four relentless hours, the first shades of daylight began illuminating the nearby beach, and neighbors along the coast spotted the ship in distress. They notified homesteaders Edward and Martha White, who quickly dressed and made their way down to the beach to help. While Edward headed north searching for survivors, Martha waved a white flag from shore and fired a pistol to get the attention of any crewmen still aboard the Ferndale. Around that time, three sailors still aboard, seeing the futility of their situation, decided to untie themselves and swim for shore. Exhausted and frozen, Eric Sundberg, Charles Carson, and Peter Patterson leapt into the icy breakers and prayed for a miracle. Barely conscious, Sundberg found his miracle when the 25-year-old Martha spotted him being tossed about in the surf like a rag doll. She waded in, removed his waterlogged life preserver, and dragged him up the beach to her house. Returning a few minutes later, she found Carlson unconscious in the sand and dragged him to safety as well. As she ran back to the water's edge, Martha saw Patterson caught in the waves just offshore. And like a scene from an action movie, Martha tore away her soaked skirt material and dove into the waves to rescue him. By the time she was able to pull him from the water, they both had reached their physical limit and collapsed onto the beach. Edward gathered several neighbors to bring the remaining survivors inside to recover, but 20 or so crewmen did not survive the ordeal. The bodies of five others washed ashore in the following days. They were all buried nearby.
Word began to spread of Martha's heroism, aided by testimony from the surviving sailors, and soon newspapers across the world had picked up and reprinted the story. State and federal politicians representing the area quickly petitioned the Treasury Department's life-saving service to bestow upon Martha a gold life-saving medal, which she received that July. The citizens of Portland, Oregon, where the cargo was destined, also honored Martha's efforts with a gold medal along with a cash reward. Travelers exploring Washington's North Beach today can still sometimes find chunks of coal from the Ferndale washed up after a storm. Those who don't can always visit the Museum of the North Beach in Moclips to see some for themselves. The final section of my book encompasses four counties not included in the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area, but whose contributions to Washington's nautical narrative ought not to be overlooked. We're talking about Pacific, Wakayakum, Cowlitz, and Clark counties, and the hub cities of Raymond, Ilwaco, Longview, and Vancouver. Some of the destinations in this section include the Willapa Seaport Museum, the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, Kalama's Transportation Interpretive Center, the Fort Vancouver National Historic Site, and many more. The destination I'm going to highlight here is near and dear to my heart, and in a few moments you'll find out why. Located a short drive south of the Vancouver area is an industrial waterfront that would ordinarily not attract even the least bit of attention. Visitors looking in the right place, however, will find something remarkable that is arguably underappreciated in Vancouver's maritime history. South of Highway 14, the Lewis and Clark Highway, at the end of Southeast Marine Parkway is the Henry J. Kaiser Memorial Shipyards Observation Tower. The three-story triangular platform is adorned with numerous interpretive panels that tell the story of how one man and an unshakable labor force helped the United States win in World War II. In 1942, industrialist Henry Kaiser came to Vancouver and obtained 200 acres of riverfront land to build a shipyard that supplied America with ships for the war effort in the Pacific. Between then and 1946, the Kaiser shipyard was the nation's most versatile churning out 141 vessels of five different types. That's nearly one a week during its operation. Included in its final tally were 10 Liberty ships, 30 tank landing ships, 50 escort aircraft carriers known as baby flat tops. They could carry and launch 37 planes each. 31 troop transports and eight cargo ships, among a few others. These ships were launched from one of 12 bays that released vessels to the waiting river on rail lines. Running these shipyards were tens of thousands of men and women who served as welders, shipwrights, painters, riveters, ship fitters, machinists, electricians, crane operators, and more. They had come by invitation from Kaiser himself, who recruited across the country with promises of good pay, housing, and medical care. Ever hear of Kaiser Permanente Health Insurance? Yep, that started here too. The biggest crowd Vancouver had ever seen in one place gathered on April 5th, 1943, when Eleanor Roosevelt christened one of the shipyard's latest creations. 
Eyewitnesses estimate around 75,000 workers, residents, and guests turned out to greet the First Lady as she smashed a bottle of champagne across the bow of the USS Alazon Bay, later renamed the USS Casablanca. Exploring the area today, visitors might have a challenging time spotting the shipways through the trees that have grown up over the years. But study the photographs in the panel affixed to the tower, and then look harder at the industrial site across the public boat launch, and the outlines of concrete walls and ramps disappearing into the river can be seen through the undergrowth. While the sight of aircraft carriers lined up on the Vancouver waterfront may never be seen again, there are still remnants of that monumental effort visible to explorers who look in just the right places today. Both of my grandfathers fought in World War II, and one of them served in the Merchant Marines. His travels took him to the Atlantic Theater, the Pacific Theater, and the Mediterranean Theater, all aboard one of the U.S.'s most overlooked wartime assets, the humble yet immensely critical Liberty Ship. These workhorses of the war carried men, supplies, munitions, and more around the world to keep our troops and our allies in top condition. Some say the outcome of the war could have been different without Liberty Ships. Of the nearly 3,000 Liberty Ships built for the war effort, 200 never made it back home. Time for the answers to today's trivia questions. Question number one was, what year did the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area officially launch? And the correct answer is 2023. The feasibility study was in 2012, and the measure passed Congress in 2019, but it officially launched in 2023. Question number two, what do we call the massive microcontinents that float around the Earth's crust smashing into each other? As cool as it would be if they were transformers, they are, in fact, terrains, spelled T-E-R-R-A-N-E. And I'm serious about visiting Nick Zentner's YouTube channel to learn more about these fascinating topics. Question three, according to History Link, today's Native American tribes in Washington are thought to have traveled from B, Siberia, after the Ice Age glaciers receded. Question four, which of these four European explorers arrived in the vicinity of Washington's coast first? Remember, this is not the first explorer to arrive on Washington's coast, but the first of these four. Was it A, Charles Wilkes, B, Juan Perez, C, Robert Gray, or D, George Vancouver? Well, the answer is B, Juan Perez. Sailing on the frigate Santiago with a crew made up mostly of Mexicans, Perez was the first non-native to sight, examine, name, and record the islands near British Columbia, including what are now Vancouver Island and Queen Charlotte Island. Perez also named what is now Mount Olympus in Washington State, calling it Cerro Nevada de Santa Rosalia. Or maybe Rosalia. And question five. The tugboat Arthur Foss was the last to leave which South Pacific island before it was invaded by the Japanese in 1941? It was Wake Island. Another ship scheduled to leave right behind the Arthur Foss didn't make it out on time. The boat, its crew, and all of its passengers were taken captive by the Japanese as prisoners of war. It would be impossible to fit the entirety of Washington's maritime history into a book of only 50,000 words. 
There are far too many fascinating stories, culturally significant destinations, and critical background points to tell the complete nautical narrative of this great state. With each successive interview of a local historical expert, or visit to a harbor or coastal community, it soon became clear while I was researching this book that I would have to winnow the topics to focus on the truly unique, or the most hidden, gems. Even that presented challenges, as I felt compelled to honor the passions of each dedicated museum volunteer, historical society board member, tribal cultural resource officer, and destination marketing representative who permitted me an interview or assisted with the research. Ultimately, I included as much of the best material as I could, but in no way does it represent the totality of the always fascinating, sometimes terrifying, often inspiring, and even humorous history that comprises the raw material with which the community of Washington was built. This book represents the shared maritime history of so many people who deserve adulation for their own research, collections, and dedication to preservation. Exploring Maritime Washington, the historical travel guidebook, seeks to provide Washington residents as well as visitors from near and far with a more comprehensive, inclusive picture and understanding of the maritime heritage of Washington. The uniqueness of Exploring Maritime Washington is based on providing the history enthusiast and travelers with a hands-on guide to the state's myriad cross-cultural attractions, sites, and stories. This historical guidebook, prepared by lifelong residents who are also knowledgeable historians and seasoned travelers, that would be myself and Chuck Fowler, offers insider information, hidden gems, and special stories that make Washington's maritime history truly extraordinary. So on behalf of Chuck and former Secretary of State and longtime heritage champion Ralph Monroe, who wrote our foreword, and myself, we hope you enjoy using it to explore and discover Maritime Washington. Pick up a copy today wherever fine books are sold. Of course, you can find it on my website, WashingtonOurHome.com, or at the History Press's website, ArcadiaPublishing.com. It's also available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other major retailers. But maybe do me a favor and go support your local heritage organization's gift shop. See if you can pick up a copy there. If they don't carry it, have them reach out to me at eric at washingtonourhome.com. That's E-R-I-C-H at washingtonourhome.com. Until then, enjoy everything our great state has to offer. I'm Eric Ebel, your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture. And I'll see you somewhere in Washington. Washington.